happened last night and covered every bore on the board on this floor. <laughs> I'm not making that up. He's seen this before, he knows the score. But uh, you have earned a chance to read this. All right. And not now, but if you work hard on it eventually, this may make sense to you. <laughs> All right. We'll see what we can do for tonight. That being said, um, how many of you read The Republic? And how many of you did a good job on it? Who? I heard, I heard some kind of sound back there. It was just me being disappointed in myself because I feel like I can't claim that. Okay, you can. What constitutes uh, I'm not asking because I don't know the answer. Yeah. What constitutes a good job of reading it? Uh, when you can give an account of the book as a whole and when it doesn't seem like arbitrary, disparate parts and it all seems completely coherent and organized in exactly the correct way. <laughs> Apart from that. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Well, all right, I've read it like 50 times, and I haven't read it enough, all right? I took a class on this from Bloom when I was in college. He had us, all we did all term was read The Republic. We had to read it every week. And we just paid our dues. It was a forced march through it. But as some can testify, if you pay your dues, eventually this begins to make sense, all right? This is one of the world's great philosophical achievements. It's also one of the great artistic achievements in the history of the world. It's in the same league as Beethoven's symphonies or the Rembrandt self-portraits, if you've ever seen those. Okay, uh, this is, in other words, is high art. Also, he's gonna start a religion and also he's going to attempt to solve all the outstanding intellectual problems of his age. You have become acquainted with them in the previous 10 weeks. You are at the point where you can begin to understand what the questions mean. Forget the answers for now. <laughs> All right. Um, actually, you're getting the best part of it early. Plato is an extraordinarily able asker of questions. And since you've been working on your papers, you know how damn hard that is. Asking questions is a skill that can be learned, and it is by no means easy. Uh, the emails I've gotten all weekend testify to the fact that this is not easy. All right. <laughs> Look, I have more questions than you have answers, and for whatever you want to do, I have questions about it. All right? So just get used to that. Um, on the other hand, the sense that I have is that looking back on the history of philosophy, almost all of Plato's answers are wrong. But he still is, if not the greatest, and I would claim the greatest intellect of the Western tradition, um, one of the greatest intellects of the history of the world. This guy really does it all. And it's very rare to find someone who's such a polymath. In other words, his ability to do different things is in the same league as Leonardo. All right. Except that Leonardo inherits many centuries of intellectual tradition. Um, what Plato inherits is the end of the Peloponnesian War. <laughs> So he's starting from ground zero, from scorched earth. And he's going to build something. This is one of the most amazing intellectual edifices ever constructed. I have read this many times. I have been looking at this for 40 years now, actually. Yep, on the order of 40 years. I still don't really know how it works. I mean, I have some ideas, but that's about all. 
All right. Um, one of the great things Plato teaches you is how to read. You may have thought that you read closely before, you didn't. All right. You don't know how to read closely until you get to Plato. And then you realize that it makes a big difference whether he's swearing by Zeus or by the dog. Right? All that stuff matters. In other words, every one of those, by the dog, or you happy man, you unhappy man, you surprising man, all of that means something. Yeah, I know. So you were flipping through the pages, hoping to get to the good stuff. Um, everything in front of you is the good stuff. That's just the way it works. All right? Um, this is the most powerfully integrated thing you're likely ever to see in a conceptual sense. All right. Um, you read it. What'd you find out? What's the, what's the book about? There's a start. Was that a trick question? What's the book about? Justice. Justice. There's a start. What else? Proper form of government. Government. There's another start. Yeah. Have I exhausted your imagination at this point? <laughs> yeah. Education. Education. Yes. Education is the ultimate political issue. Plato was right about that. Yeah. The good life, yeah, and the good. What else? The soul. What? The soul, yeah, absolutely. Greek word for soul is psyche. We get words like psychology from it. What else? Yeah. The connection between the private and public life. Okay, uh, private and public life. It seems that he's not interested in giving people private life. Okay, the order of the soul is like the order of the city. It's not quite the same thing as private life. We're going to move actually a ways away from inventing private life. Those of you who have ever read Moore's Utopia, it still hasn't become, come into existence in 1719. That's why he wants everybody's house to have no locks on any of the doors. Because he just said, well, what would you want that for? So you could do bad stuff? No, we're not allowing that. So uh, private life actually gets invented in the last few centuries. And it's not that people didn't do things in private. They did. But the idea that there's a domain of activity where everybody else should stay away and has an obligation to, um, that's, a, that's a relatively new idea. The ancients wouldn't have had any such idea. What else? You were all looking sheepish. Yes? I have a question. Okay, there's a start. <laughs> um, reading through the first city City of utmost necessity. Right. Um, it strikes me that that doesn't really seem like a city where people are taught how to pursue the good or pursue philosophy or even enabled to. Philosophy requires leisure. That's certainly true. So while the city of utmost necessity may be uh, lacking in certain vices that more complex cities have, um, it doesn't have the virtue of knowledge, which is what virtue is going to ultimately turn out to be. In other words, for Plato, knowledge and virtue are the same thing. Ignorance and vice are the same thing. Right? Without leisure, we don't have the possibility of living in the examined life. Right? So that's a kind of pre-human state. Right. What else, though? Come on, I asked you what the book is about. You're all going, wow, I don't know. 300 pages and you don't know what it's about. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the connection between knowledge and power. 
Knowledge and power, yeah, one of the great themes of the book. All right. Um, the world's a mess because the people that know what's going on aren't in charge, and the people that are in charge don't know what's going on. Yeah? Um, just how different types of people like, are vital to the running of the state. Okay, different kinds of activities are necessary to the running of a state in the same way that different elements of the soul are necessary to running a human individual. Okay, what else? Okay, um, the idea of a philosopher king, which is very counterintuitive. Right? At, in the post Peloponnesian War Athenian view of the world, all right, um, we were great once, we had a whole bunch of stuff, but then somehow, some way, somebody who was not us, the survivors, caused us to, to fail. So looking around for a, a scapegoat, philosophy may be one of them, particularly for people who only know Socrates through the clouds. Right? So it's not clear whether, whether um, a city is compatible with philosophy. How do we make philosophy safe for the city and the city safe for philosophy? That's one of the big themes of the book, too. What else? Yeah. That gods can't really be bipolar. Um, that Gods can't be bipolar? Well, like... That the the old form, like in Homeric, where gods can't be good and bad, they they're only where that makes sense is that they are good. Okay, yeah. Homer, his poetry and his theology have to go. All right, he represents the gods badly, and if you think that gods do bad stuff like Cephalus does, all right, then you're going to lead a life full of bad stuff because of your miseducation. Again, education is the ultimate political issue. What else? Yeah. Um, the, the kind of the, the idea of like the noble lie. Okay. This is about truth and the good. How how can a lie be noble? And what's noble about it? That's not obvious either. Since we are, in many respects, children of the Enlightenment, the idea that the government has not only the ability but the obligation to lie to the majority of its people does not seem very satisfactory to us off the top. All right? The idea is that if government comes from us through the social contract, well, you know, very little can properly be hidden from the people that ensure the legitimacy of that. All right? So, yeah, we're going to have some concerns about justice and about knowledge and their connection. What else? Yeah. That there like shouldn't be um, sexual relations in the city or it should be like... Okay, only... that's a big deal. Yeah. Um, sex, which is a big part of the human psyche, is a big part of the book for that reason. All right. Appetites, desires. These are not voluntary. Everybody gets them. They come packaged along with um, being a human being and moving towards adulthood. All right. How does reason relate to desire? And what's the status of the Homeric hero? 
Because you have to stand back, even if you're Plato and you have all kinds of criticism over it, you stand back and you can't help but admire this stuff. You look at the Iliad, you look at the Odyssey, and look, this guy can write. Right. Um, it's moving, it's powerful for people 30 centuries after it was written who live in an entirely different world. All right. So a large part of Plato's feelings about Homer all right, come from professional jealousy. Plato is an eminent poet. He looks at this and says, damn, that's good. <laughs> Not only is it good, but it's really wrong, which means that however good it is, being wrong just makes that good be even worse. In other words, Plato feels about Homer very much the way later on next year we're going to find out that Nietzsche feels about Plato. Again, they're philosopher poets, and both of them have a sense of professional jealousy. And the guy who came before them is deeply, deeply wrong. And we got to pay. He's got to be made to pay. All right. But that's for later on next year. Um, it's about sex. It's about family. It's about truth. It's about reality. It's about knowledge. All right. It's about art. It's about psychology. In other words, it's a book about everything. And there are very few books that can actually get away with that. Okay. Go ahead and do what you will with this. Uh, so I am thoroughly inadequate to talk about the Republic. I've read it five times and I still barely understand it. Uh, but I thought I would uh, talk about two themes that are really important to the book. Uh, first, justice and the drama of justice and the sentence. So first of all, I want to try to give you a sense of the unity of the whole book, because as he was saying at the beginning, the book feels like a mess. What does the noble lie have to do with sex? What is, uh, how is this all connected? Uh, and one of the sense, this, the book was, Plato didn't call it The Republic on Justice, but uh, the title was added after uh, by subsequent editors that this book is about justice, and that's a pretty good way of looking at it. Book begins uh, with Symmachus, uh, with Cephalus, Paul Marcus, and Thrasymachus talking about justice and having all these different definitions of justice. And the book really gets going when Glaucon and Adamantus ask Socrates, please tell us what is justice and is it better to be just than to be unjust? This, if you want to get into the drama of this book, you have to understand the weight of that question. Is it better to be a just man, or is it better to be an unjust man? In most novels, in most dramas, there is a, uh, there's someone who personifies the enemy. There is a, a physical enemy. Uh, but this isn't a drama of people and places. This is a drama of the mind. So the, the villain in this story is not person, the villain in this story is bad speech. Uh, Socrates is constantly fighting bad speech with good speech. Bad speech tells us that injustice is better than justice. And you, you have to step back and look at your own experience that this is something we encounter constantly. A day doesn't, the alarm goes off in the morning and I say to myself, uh, it would be better to, the just thing for me to do, uh, 
uh, what I owe to society is to get out of bed and start on my work. But I really feel comfortable in this bed. It's really soft, it's really cozy. I'd like to stay in here for another 10 minutes, and that 10 minutes turns into another hour, and then another two hours, and I've wasted half the day. A day doesn't go by where we're not tempted constantly to do the unjust thing. So this is a drama that is played out in all of our lives constantly. Is it the best thing to do to do the just thing or the unjust thing? And now in order to talk about this, in order to give an adequate answer to this question, I mean, most of the Socratic dialogues, they don't arrive at the answer to the question. And this, the Republic shows you why, because in order to answer a question, like what is justice, or what is knowledge, or what is virtue, you have to cover an enormous amount of ground. The question of what is justice inherently brings in the question of politics, because justice is not just something that we encounter in ourselves, it's a question for society. What is the just society? It, can there be a just man if he doesn't live in a just society, in a world that is ordered towards what is right? Uh, it also inherently brings in the question of education, because people, because the because of bad language, because the because as Adamantus points out, the poets are constantly uh, making arguments that make one think that justice maybe isn't the best thing, and we encounter this in our world today. Uh, think of most Hollywood blockbusters, uh, where you have the charming, uh, athletic uh, man who sleeps around and leaves town at the end of the movie, and this is our model for what uh, of masculinity. Uh, similar things can be said about femininity in our world. So the question of education and the question of art, which is inherently educative, is inherently tied in to the question of justice, politics, education, and then surprising, and then also psychology. Uh, if you're going to ask, is it better to be just or unjust, you have to understand what a human being is and what is good for a human being. And psychology, finally, you also have to talk about metaphysics, because if you're going to ask what is anything, it's really helpful to know what is in general. Uh, <laughs> what can we say, what can we, how, how can we answer the question, what is, only with something that fits at the end of the sentence, what is. Uh, so we have to ask the question, what is in general, uh, the question of ontology, in order to answer the question of what is justice. So that, that's why this book has such a broad scope. In every point, in every little gesture, Socrates is moving us around in the question of justice. So it's a drama about justice. It's a drama about what is right. And that uh, it's, it's a moving, moving story when you come to see it that way. He proves by logical argument, step by step, that justice is always better to do the just thing than to do the unjust thing. At the end, he gives three proofs for it. Uh, I think that this may be uh, a gesture towards uh, the three awards that are given at the end of a drama, Athenian, uh, Athenian tragedies. Uh, Plato's play wins all three awards, uh, according to himself. That's what I think Plato would do. Exactly. Uh, Characters are moved by the argument, by the very rational, very careful, logical argument, to see that justice is in fact better than injustice. Glaucon apologizes uh, at the end of Book Four uh, for saying that justice was inferior, that injustice was better than justice, 
And Adamant just almost comes to the point of agreeing, but it doesn't quite at the end. Uh, it's moving, you get attached to the characters and you want them to see, as you're coming to see yourself, that every act, every act that has a potentiality of being just or unjust, every time it is better to do the just thing. That's the argument of this book, and it's when you, when you start to see that, the book comes together in a real way. Uh, I'm almost moved to tears when at the end of the book he says, having proven that justice is better in itself, I now wish to give it back all the awards of justice that we removed at the beginning of the book. Do you remember that uh, Adam Montes says, let's uh, consider justice uh, minus the awards that are given to it, so good reputation, uh, good, uh, a reputation for fair play and uh, wealth and honor, things of that nature, tend to come, the, I'm sorry, I can't really talk about this book. <laughs> uh, He's trying to talk about autonomous rather than heteronomous justice. Fair enough. Yes, it is. Uh, That's an inside joke. <laughs> <laughs> After you do call it. <laughs> but you see what I mean? Yes, I do. No, it's, What Plato is doing here is instead of moving us uh, by emotion, and not just, I mean, he's moving us by emotion and by logic and by reason. This is one of the, his great uh, gifts to the Western tradition is the insistence on following the argument. He makes, uh, for everything that he states, he makes an argument for why that is the case, and he says, put up or shut up. I'm given an argument. If you uh, want to disagree with me, say why you disagree with the argument. So for instance, when he gets to uh, the perfect city, he has some rather interesting ideas about uh, the relationship between uh, between men and women. Uh, so the, if you're following carefully, the men and women who are brothers and sisters are meant to have be married by lots. And uh, then those marriages are broken up and they move on to have sex with someone else at a later date and the more better kind of person you are, the more likely you are to have more marriages. Uh, and this is a rather strange and disturbing idea <laughs> that uh, men and women are, are to, uh, it's sexual liber liberation on some level. Uh, the, the argument that he makes for that is rather interesting. He says that the goal of the city is preservation of the city. Uh, and this can only be achieved when the common good is paramount. Uh, when the individual sacrifices his good for the sake of the common good. And from that perspective, you can see that there is a kind of justice in the idea that everyone is fair game. Uh, that there's a kind of justice in that. But I think Plato was wrong, and so I, there's an argument that can be made against it. And I think he would kind of like this argument. Uh, the city is like the man. The man's, the just man's goal is not the preservation of himself indefinitely in the state that he is in now. The just man wants to get beyond this world to the realm of the forms. He wants to die and go to Plato's version of heaven. Uh, in the same way, the city's goal is not the preservation of the whole, but instead to get its members uh, to the realm of the forms. This is my idea. Uh, 
the by that goal, the in order to in order to make virtuous men, you need an institution that can best educate individuals, and the best institution we found for educating individuals is the family. Uh, Plato destroys the family in order to uh, remove uh, private goods, meaning individuals. Families worry about their own good more than they worry about the good of the city. And in order to preserve the city, we have to eliminate the private good. Plato thinks. Uh, but if we want to get beyond that, and I think we should, uh, that's an argument. That's an attempt at an argument. I've, uh, so this isn't going quite as well as I was hoping. But I'll move on to uh, the, final the final point that I wanted to make. Is that the very most, I think one of the most important parts of the whole book is the very center, where we get to uh, the analogy of the good with the sun and the myth of the king. Uh, it's hard for us to get wrap our, eye, our minds around the idea of the theory of forms. There are all sorts of ways that teachers try to get students to understand what Plato was talking about when he talked about these things. The best that I've found uh, is something that Abraham Maslow, a story that Abraham Maslow once told his students. Uh, he's a, a prominent uh, professor of the last century. He was serving as the chair of the Department of Psychology and was expected to attend the graduation ceremony in full academic regalia. He had avoided such events previously, considering them silly rituals. But he said, as the procession began to move, he suddenly saw it as an endless procession. Far, far ahead of the very beginning of the procession was Socrates. Quite a way back was still well ahead of Maslow was Spinoza. Then just ahead of him was Freud, followed by his own teachers and himself. Behind him stretching endlessly were his students and his students' students, generation after generation as yet unborn. Maslow assures us that what he was experiencing was not hallucination, rather it was a particular kind of insight. What Maslow is doing is he's seeing the ritual, the enactment that is going on around him as a symbol of something greater. The university uh, is meant to be a just a place of free access to knowledge and this pursuit of wisdom that uh, Plato started us on all those centuries ago. It's not very often. Usually it, it's said uh, as it, it's it's a place of petty rivalries and uh, individual attempts to uh, gain prestige and honor. No specific university attains to the standard of what we think the best university should be, but all of us desire that best university, that perfect university. That's sort of the experience that Plato is getting at when he is talks about his theory of forms. There, we have all these individual experiences that spark desires in us. Uh, an experience of beauty, an experience of goodness, an experience of joy. And when we consider all of them, we can come to imagine what would the perfect instantiation of this specific thing be? What would, what would it be like if I had joy in itself without any uh, admixture? What would it be like if I saw the beauty that is present in all these little, these different beautiful things, but without the inhibition of seeing beauty. What would it be like? And we desire deeply this experience. Plato's insistence is that there is something which exists, which corresponds to that deep desire in our hearts. 
you know, something that corresponds to our desire for complete wisdom, something that corresponds to our desire for complete beauty. He, what he's talking about here is transcendence. And I don't know if you've seen the uh, painting of Plato and Aristotle with Plato pointing up and Aristotle uh, pointing uh, with his hands, uh, staying down, stay down here. Aristotle has this vortex, this energy pointed up. We, he wants to get beyond uh, the realm of change and escape time and come to have these things in themselves. And I think he's partially right. I don't think that there is a form of tables or a form of chairs that exists uh, in the dependent of individual chairs. But the Christian tradition has picked up this idea of the good itself, the beautiful itself, this deep longing that our hearts feel for little things that we get glimpses of in this world, but might have their perfect fulfillment in another world. C.S. Lewis will pick this up, uh, at, going all the way back to Augustine, uh, who was himself uh, a platonist. There is this, this desire for transcendence, and what Plato's incredible gift is to hold together this desire for transcendence with intense logical rigor. Uh, there, he... There, I don't know of another philosopher who holds those two things together. Aristotle has an amazing logical rigor, but he doesn't have this incredible desire for transcendence. Uh, Kierkegaard wants to get beyond this world desperately, but he doesn't exactly have logical rigor. Uh, it's a unique gift that Plato had to hold uh, this deep desire for transcendence and intense logical rigor together. Um, I didn't do my job very well today, but I'm learning, and Plato's a good teacher. You did well. You did well. You took on a very hard job. I mean, you got much of it right, and what you didn't get right, you got on. <laughs> so it's all good. All right, a couple of things. First off, Plato is the most radical philosopher that has ever lived. All right. He is far more radical than, say, Marx and Engels. Marx and Engels want to modify the family and change the distribution of wealth. Plato's decided that the family and wealth are in the way, so he's going to get rid of them. He's going to bulldoze them. Got to get rid of them. All right. In other words, nothing stands between Plato and his goal. All right. um, the most powerful of human uh, customs, for example, he says... Um, in the good city when they're drawing these bogus lots and they're, they're trying to create eugenic matchings of males and females. Um, he says, look, if it turns out that the best match is a brother and a sister, we ask the, uh, the Oracle of Delphi, and if the Oracle of Delphi is okay with it, we're okay with incest. No, the rules against incest may be in the way, in which case, that's it. Both those are out of the way. The family's in the way, it's gotta go. Money, it's out, it's gotta go. Um, well, okay. All other political forms, unacceptable, they have to go too. Damn. Uh, Plato is nothing if not extreme. All right. So Plato is the most radical of political writers. There's nothing that stops him. Right. Most people would, be, would have a second thought about advocating incest. And Plato says, look, it's not that I'm particularly interested in incest, but if this is the best way to run society, then we're going to do it. 
forget your old rules. I don't care where you got them from. If they don't make sense and the, uh, the Oracle of Delphi is okay with it, we're going to work. So we're going to abolish the family. We're going to abolish money among the rulers. We're actually going to abolish all property among the rulers. We're going to tell lies to the vast majority of society, but also to the rulers when we're breeding them together like horses or dogs. Now here's one of the heartbreaks about the idea of eugenics. Um, since Plato, at the very least, we've had the idea of breeding human beings the way we breed dogs or horses. Uh, those of you who know about horses or dogs will know that when they're bred, we choose the most excellent of the examples, and we breed it with this the, uh, with the opposite sex, an excellent example of that, in the hope that we'll get faster horses or that we'll get better dogs that do doggy things in a superior fashion. No, stop and think about it. Um, consider, for example, uh, something my daughters used to like when they were little, and I still sort of like it. Um, dog shows on television, you ever seen those? Okay, this is a, a contest to see which dog is the doggiest. In other words, what we're trying to find is not is the dog that has the most canine virtue, that has the excellence characteristic of dogs. You will note if you bring a horse there, right, they will say that's an admirable animal, but you cannot enter it into our into this competition due to the fact that it is not a dog. You see how that would make sense. But if you stop and think about the Westminster dog show or any of those great big ones that they have on television, and they check out each breed and then they bring the breeds together and they find out the best. Um, the one that ends up getting best in show is inevitably this beautiful, perfectly symmetrical, perfectly obedient um, dog. In other words, it has all the qualities that you could possibly hope a dog is ever going to have. Right? So it's always this image of perfection. Now, this idea of an image is very important. All right? Plato's theory of forms, object of some controversy, um, I can end the controversy quickly. Um, you already believe in Plato's theory of forms. All right, I, I, Plato's just reminding you of what you already know. Let, allow me to show this. This is certainly the case. I want you to think of, okay, uh, I want you to think of an imaginary dictionary. All right, I know they're obsolete, but imagine one anyway. And it's an illustrated dictionary, so not only do you have the, the, uh, terms and the definition, but for the relevant ones, you have pictures of them. Okay. In your imaginary dictionary, I want you to look up horse. It's under H. Okay. You look up horse. Okay. So there's the definition of a horse there. And you must know one way or another what the definition of a horse is because you use the word horse to other speakers of English in a perfectly satisfactory way. Right? You never say, my, that's an interesting horse. No, that's a cop. <laughs> right? um, I'm not sure that you could give me the dictionary definition, but that doesn't really matter. If you genuinely didn't know what the meaning of horse was, you'd be completely baffled by the idea of making reference to it in any sentence. But horse is not mysterious. Okay, there we go. Okay, now, I want you to imagine, all right, a horse, okay? Now, this will be the picture that we put next to the definition of horse, all right? And uh, my sense is, 
is that not only will it be a horse, but it's going to be a really great horse. It's going to be like man of war or secretariat or one of those really fast race horses. It's going to be a great one. Right. And if you're, if you're not satisfied with, it, with the greatness of any particular horse, maybe you'll do a cut and paste with one of those Apple computers. So you're going to take the head of Secretariat and the legs of Man of War and uh, the body of Seabiscuit and whatever else you want to put into the horse. But the point is, then you're going to have a really great horse. In other words, this is an exemplar of horse. That's why we put it in the dictionary next to it. That's not mysterious. Okay, now... I want you to imagine, again, you want an image in your mind, of horse. Okay. Now, I am also, I have an image of a horse in my mind. Let me describe it for you. It's microscopic and purple. It's made of aluminum and has 13 heads and 15 legs. Why is that funny? You're, you're, all, you're all laughing like that's stupid. Uh, why are you smiling? That's my question. What's funny about that? What? Well, hold up. I say it is a horse. No, what you, what you mean by it's not a horse is that is nothing like the horse I have in my mind, the image of the horse that I wanted to put next to horse. Okay, here's the deal. If you didn't already have an image in your head of a horse, you would not find my weird description of a horse funny. What you find funny about it is the discrepancy between what I'm describing, this purple, microscopic, aluminum, 13-headed thing, and the image of a horse that you have. Okay, that image, all right, um, what Plato means by, what, in Greek when he's talking about that image is idios. It can be translated as idea, but it can also be translated as form. So what you're thinking about then that image of a horse that has excellent horseosity, its hoarseness is just tremendous, right? It has great legs and great, great neck and has all kinds of great horse qualities. Okay, the fact that you found that funny is evidence that you in fact had an image in your mind. This image could be called the idea or the idios of horseness. Idios, to make it a little more familiar to you, is often translated as idea, but it can also be translated as form. But idios, when it gets modified just a little bit, is the source of our word video. What's a video of something? It's a picture that transforms. Okay, take one of the stills out from that picture. Thus, horseness. That is horseosity. That is what we're going to put next to the term horse in our imaginary dictionary. Not my crazy account of a horse. Okay, what that means is this. Since you found my account of the image of a horse funny, that meant that you had a different, discrepant image of a horse in your head. What that means is, is that you already believe in the theory of forms. Because you are, I, already, I just found and isolated in your mind the idea of a horse. So far, so good. Okay. This image, then, um, will be true for all the images that are going to be in your imaginary dictionary. 
and you know what they are. They're idiots. They're always going to be a really good example. If you uh, look under athlete, you're going to find somebody that's a great Olympic medalist or something. All right? uh, it won't be someone who has no athletic ability. All right? So you already believe that there is an image associated with things, and this image is an idealization. In other words, in your imaginary dictionary, none of you have put in the three-legged horse. Not one of you. Why? Because horses are supposed to have four legs. Why? Because that's part of the essence of horsiness. Okay? So, rather than Plato's theory of forms being far-fetched, in fact, you're already committed to it on a, a number of different levels. Now, here's the idea of a form. Plato asks the interesting question. What causes us to refer to this thing as a book, and that thing as a book, and that thing as a book, and that thing as a book? Well, Plato says they all must participate in some idea. Now, they participate imperfectly, because the world around us is imperfect. But the idea of bookness is what makes something a book. The idea of hoarseness is what makes something a horse. If there were no form of the horse, we wouldn't know how to group horses together. Right? So then, what Plato is saying is, outside of space and time, outside of the realm of sense perception altogether, there is a realm that has no space and no time, which is populated by pure ideas. And that's what you're thinking about when you're thinking about the perfect horse, the one that was in the dictionary next to your picture. Okay? So what Plato wants us wants to do is liberate us from the world of sense perception, the world of becoming, the world of change, the world of transformation. He says you really can't know about that. The best you can hope for is opinions about it. What you can really know are things that remain what they are and never change. And there are two kinds of those. One is forms. That's the general image that a whole plurality of things in this world participates in. In other words, it's what unifies common nouns. Okay? The other kind of thing that you can have knowledge of that stays the way it is is math. When in doubt, Think math when you think of Plato. Look, whenever Plato wants to talk about knowledge, what he's really talking about is arithmetic. Why? Because arithmetic is God's gift to Platonists. Whenever somebody starts to get all mushy and subjective and perspectival and, you know, it's your opinion, that's my opinion, you can't really know, what you do is, here's how you take that on. All right, this, is the, this is a kind of verbal judo. All right? You ask them about arithmetic. And you ask them if they're doing separate arithmetic from everybody else. And if they are, ask them what their unique arithmetic is like and how they get through life like that. And if it's not, you have to ask them, well, okay, then that's not a question of opinion. That's not subjective. It's not culturally determined. It's none of that crap. Two and two is four. Those of you who read uh, Orwell's 1984, two plus two is four. If that is granted, everything else follows. So it's a way of pulling yourself up out of a swamp of phenomena. 
upward towards noumena, upward towards the forms, upward towards ideal perfection itself. Going up and going down always means the same thing in this book and in all the other Platonic dialogues. It's derived from the cave. When you're down, the bottom of the cave, you believe those shadows are real. When you get up, let up out of the cave, you see the sun, which is the form of the good, and the form of the good illuminates all the other forms that you see. So you see perfect squareness and perfect sevenness and perfect beauty, and they're all doing whatever it is they do in their own forms. And that is what perfects the soul, and that's what properly guides human life. All right. Now, you have to remember Plato is writing this in the 380s. It was about 20 years after the end of the Peloponnesian War, 25 years maybe. And uh, Plato's pissed off still. I mean, he has flogged the leadership in the symposium and done a good job of it. But he's got to come back and ask the big question. How did we blow it? In other words, we had the greatest city in the history of the world. And we got beaten by these nitwits, the Spartans, who we could have beaten and should have beaten. We weren't beating them for a substantial portion of the war. And then, instead of getting beaten by the Spartans, we beat ourselves by going to Sicily with Alcibiades. Where did we go wrong? And Plato has some ideas about this. First of all, he thinks that the ruling elite, which we've encountered in the symposium, is a collection of halfwits at the very best. All right? These guys don't know what's going on. And they're remarkable both for their effrontery and for their narcissism. They think they're really great. You've got to think of Agathon here. Right? They say, we are properly a ruling elite because we have so much virtue. We're just loaded with arete. And we have all this new knowledge. We have Homer, who is old knowledge, but we also have uh, my, uh, Ionian physics. And we have the sophists. And we have comedy and tragedy. And the elite says, that's what makes us so great. Athens is great because we are great. Plato's question, 25 years after the end of the war, is, well, if you were so great, why did we lose? The, the answer begins to emerge. Some people start to blame Aris, uh, Socrates and Alcibiades. Plato says, look, I've dealt with that already. Alcibiades was not caused by Socrates. But the bigger question remains, where did we go wrong? How can a government be run well? And he says, here's, here's something to start out with. Here's an idea. The central problem of politics is the relation between knowledge and power. The guys who have power don't know what they're doing. The people who know what they're doing, they don't run for office. They don't have that's messed up. Why is it messed up? Because nothing, no activity prospers if you don't know what you're doing. And that's not just true of statesmanship. It's true of everything, every practical thing you might want to do. Imagine for a second, for a second amateur brain surgery. How's that sound? Well, what's wrong with that idea? You don't want like an amateur performing on you. You want someone. Why is that? Because you want someone that knows what they're going to be doing. So you why? 
some system that don't mess you up too much in the head. Okay. So in other words, so they could be performing successful surgery. Right. Right. Whereas if you get, say, an auto mechanic to operate on your brain, you're going to die. <laughs> okay. Now, it doesn't mean that an auto mechanic is a bad man. Um, if you want your brains done, I would recommend you go to him. If you want brain surgery, I think you should go to a brain doctor. Right. Somebody that's done this before and went to medical school and knows all the parts and all the, the appropriate knowledge. In other words, try to think of some activity that prospers when you don't know what you're doing. There's no such thing. So doing something well always requires knowledge. Now he says, since Athens blew it so badly and so completely, it can't be that the people that ran the society, the elite, or the people that made the citizens that made up the voting population, neither of them knew what they were doing. And the problem that destroyed Athens was power without knowledge. So he says, if we're going to fix what's wrong with society and what's wrong with individuals, we have to reconnect knowledge and power. And that is the idea behind the very strange uh, proposal of the philosopher king. I mean, in other words, if it, things work only insofar as you know what you're doing. When you're looking around for, a for someone to run a government, you want a magistrate that knows how to run a government. Is that a kind of knowledge? Well, if it isn't, we're cooked, because that means that there's no way of creating a good government. If it is a kind of knowledge, the next question is, who has this knowledge? Where can we find this guy? And that's actually very hard to identify. Right. So, um, knowledge and power, and going up and going down. Down is always ignorance and dark, up is always knowledge and light and the forms. We get that in the myth of the cave. You also get that in the divided line. You also get that on the first page. You get, find it in the first paragraph, and you find it in the first word. Allow me to show If you have a look at that first page, if you happen to have it, in Greek, the first line is, down I went to Piraeus. Down matters. Because, you see, at the time, he's with, Socrates is with Glaucon, and Glaucon is associated with Socrates because he's the one most like him. And Socrates sees a point in talking to Glaucon because he might be able to do something with this noble young man. The rest of these yokels, he wants nothing to do with. But they insist. Why? Well, because they want what they want. What happens? Polemarchus and the lads are walking along the same road, but Socrates and Glaucon are a ways off. They send their Polemarchus sends his slave up, says, Socrates, stop. Then Polemarchus catches up and he says, come on, Socrates, you're going to go back and talk to me at my dad's house. You know, I'm the son of Cephas. And uh, Socrates says, well, I'd rather not. And they say, well, look, we're not asking you, we're telling you. And he says, what do you mean? He says, look, how many there are of us and how many there are of you. This is the plight of the philosopher in the democratic city. You're going to do what we say because we have the power. Alas, we don't have the knowledge. You have that. Socrates says a very good point. Well, is it possible 
that I might persuade you not to arrest me and bring me down, down, always means the same thing, down to Kefalus's house. I'd rather go talk to Glaucon. And the Polemicus comes back with a great retort. Could you persuade us if we won't listen? <laughs> now, stop and think about this. Right? These people are arresting Socrates and compelling him to go down to Cephalus's house so they can talk all night. But they're not going to listen, which is how he actually gets down there. So these are divided men. These are chaotic men. These men do not know what they want. Right? These are very changeable men. I remember for Plato, change isn't good. Okay, so the first line is, down I went to Piraeus, and on the first page, Socrates gets arrested. He's the least lawless of the crew, and yet they put him under arrest, which is what you would expect from people that don't know what they're doing. Okay, they go down, and this is actually one of the funniest things, but you have to read it very carefully. There's so much going on in that book one. He meets Cephas. Socrates and Cephas are both in their 60s. They're both old men. Back then, that would be like 85. Okay, so they're really old. And Cephas has just come in from performing the sacrifices. So he's got the laurel in his hair, and he's got some blood on his hands, and you know he's uh, sacrificing away. That's his idea of piety. Um, and it's a very funny exchange. Socrates, who is old, says, Cephalus, so great to see you. I don't see you often enough. Cephalus says, come on down. You know, you should be here more often. And then Socrates says, Cephalus, can you tell me, what's it like to be old? Now, Socrates is old, so he doesn't need to ask a nitwit like Cephalus what he thinks. But again, this is just part of the comedy that's built in. This is high comedy. Cephalus says, oh, it's awful. You know, um, you know, you can't do the stuff you used to do, and I used to be a party animal, all right? Cephalus and his son Polemicus are both medics, M-E-T-I-C-S. A medic is a resident alien. It'd be like an American that's a, not a citizen, but has a green card, so they can legally live in Athens. Cephalus is in the armaments business, and he's made a mint supplying weapons to the Athenian state. Okay, but boys will be boys. And he looks back on his life and he said, you know, back in the day, I could really drink. And back in the day, I had a weakness for women. Now I'm old and impotent. I'm really glad that that's gone away because I was like being pushed around by emotions that were like a crazy master and I was a slave. He says, I'm really happy to have lost some of my desires and appetites. But he says, you know, as those appetites waned, a man gets to thinking. He looks back on his life and he says, I did a lot of stuff that probably the gods aren't going to like because they violate ordinary understandings of right and wrong. So I may have welshed on a deal or two. I may have stolen when I could. I may have padded bills. There's all kinds of stuff you can do. But he says, now that I look back on my life like that, it occurs to me, what if those stories that poets like Homer tell about the afterlife and the punishments for those that do evil and stuff like that, what if any of that, some of that stuff is true? If it is, I'm cooked. I'm in big trouble. 
But he says, you know what's great about Homer? He gives us the way out, the way to solve this problem. Now, the way to solve the problem of moral evil is not by refraining from moral evil. The way to solve the problem of moral evil is to do what you want, whether it's evil or not. And then for the evil stuff at the end of your life, you sacrifice a bunch of oxen and you buy off the gods. So in other words, the ideas of the gods can be bribed. And that's what he's doing when he's shooting me. He's killing oxen in a big way and sheep and chickens. He's killing all kinds of livestock because he's running scared. Okay. Now, we're not going to talk to Kephalus very long because he's impossible to talk to. In other words, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. We can't have him become part of the discussion. So we're going to have a brief interlude with him, and then we're going to send him out to go kill more oxen. And he's well employed killing oxen, right? Because at least he can't hurt himself or anybody else. And, you know, they're going to eat the oxen anyway. And uh, it reduces his anxiety because he thinks he's going to get over on the gods if he pays them off, all right? This is the, the consequence of bad education from poets. It means you'll live a bad life. So Socrates says, well, okay, I mean, you know, you're an old man, and of course the irony is Socrates is an old man too, and he says, uh, apart from, you know, trying to bribe the gods and trying to get over, um, what's it like to be old? And he says to Socrates, well, I'll tell you, some old people complain about it, some don't, but me, my view is that as long as you've got a lot of money, there's really nothing to worry about. Now we're talking to Socrates, who is old and has nothing and never will. Yeah, that's the, the joke. You know, you have to realize this is, this is a very elevated kind of comedy. No lizard is going to crap on it. All right? Instead, we got the idea of this old geezer telling Socrates, the philosopher, who has nothing but is equally old, that the only way to get through old age is to have a lot of money, which, of course, would justify the evil that you did before. And Socrates says, that's great. Great, I'm glad to hear that. And, of course, the idea is that I'm good. <laughs> if he's right, but of course this guy doesn't know what's going on. You should go kill oxen. Okay. So you have to see the elevated irony there. All right. Now, Cephalus, whose name incidentally means head. All right. In fact, he's one of the, uh, some of the names are just proper names in this. Some of the names actually mean something. Cephalus means head. He's the head of the household. We're going to have him go kill oxen. Okay. His son, Polemarchus, is the heir of the argument. He inherits the argument about justice from his father. And what's great about Polemarchus is that he's not burdened by an excessive modesty. Right? You have to imagine this is a teenager. Okay? So we're talking about somebody, say, let's say 15. And Socrates, the aged philosopher, has finally been forced by Polemarchus to come to his house. And Polemarchus says, you want to know about justice? That's easy, Socrates. He's envisioning uh, a few more pages and then the Republic ends. <laughs> Why? Because Polemarchus quotes poets, in this case Simonides, and he also does injustice. Here's the injustice that he does. This is something we're going to get next week when we look at Aristotle's politics. Aristotle says it is an injustice to treat unequal things as if they are equal. What that means is this. All right? 
the old, the aged, are naturally more wise than the young. He is 15, talking to a man his father's age. It could be his grandfather's age. And he says, Socrates, that's no problem. I can instruct you about justice. I have no problem with that. I learned it from, I heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody who heard it from Simonides. Let me tell you what it is. Okay, so he's treating youth and age as if they're equal. He is also treating Socrates, who is a citizen, as the equal of a medic, which is Polemarchus, who is not a citizen. The, later on, when we get to books eight and nine, we will find both of those activities, treating the aged as if they were young, or the young as if they were aged, and treating citizens as if they were, me, they were aliens or not, uh, that will be described as characteristic of a democratic regime. And of course, Polemarchus grew up under a democratic regime. It would make sense that he would have the virtues, he's outspoken and bold, but also the vices. He's nervy and not very coherent. He does not know himself, nor does he know who Socrates is. He's in a state of ignorance, but he thinks he knows a lot of great stuff. Now, Socrates very quickly and very easily, in a very gentle way, you know, Socrates could do to him what he did to Meletus in the Apology, which is Bambi versus Godzilla. <laughs> right? The, the big foot comes down, and Bambi's out there, two little X's on the eyes. That's all for Bambi. Right? No, you should look that up on the net when you get the chance. Bambi versus Godzilla. It's the best 10 second cartoon you're ever going to see. Right? Because that's what the cross X of Meletus is. It doesn't, it doesn't actually turn into a dialogue, it just squashes him. And he could do that with Polemarchus, but he doesn't want to. He says, no, he has something else in mind. He'd like to really talk about justice since he's here with these guys. And he's not going to get much from Polemarchus. He really doesn't know what he's talking about. So Polemarchus says it's helping, en- helping friends and doing harm to enemies. Socrates quickly shows that the good man does no one any harm. That in a significant way, the good man, the philosopher, hasn't gotten the enemy. Okay, then Thrasymachus, the beast of discourse, the wild animal, the wolf, who who had they had to restrain him from jumping in to this argument because why he is very excitable, and Thrasymachus is a sophist who has come to town to sell his wisdom and his rhetorical skills to wealthy young men that have political ambitions. In other words, what he wants to do is get Polemarchus and Glaucon and Adamantus, the three young men that are looking towards the future, he wants to get them as students. It's big money. Glaucon and Adamantus are Plato's brothers, and they're both citizens of the city along with Socrates. The distinction between citizens and non-citizens is a big deal here. Also, youth and age. Yeah. They're at, he's at, they're actual brothers? Yeah, they're Plato's brothers. Okay. Okay. So now, um, Socrates very quickly and easily disposes of Polemarchus. He says, All right, when you learn something, son, we'll talk, we'll talk again, but not now. You just go over there and quiet down. Um, and we're going to find that a couple of others uh, in the group 
speak briefly, but they just interrupt and they don't say anything thereafter. See, a platonic dialogue, there are no accents. Everything in a platonic dialogue is perfect. What we have here is people that have nothing to contribute to a discussion shutting up. That is a perfect world. <laughs> right? Now, this is Plato's idea of a perfect world. Oh, wow. Just in the present Socrates, everybody said, why don't I shut up? Why don't you? That's a great idea. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're making progress already. All right. Then Polemicus says, hmm, perhaps I should shut up. He doesn't say that, but he says, hmm, I got beaten pretty badly there. Actually, I got mauled. And uh, maybe I'll listen more than I talk. And I said, well, for 16 or 15, that's actually not a bad idea, son. <laughs> All right, so he inherited the argument. Here's the deal. The inheritors of this argument are you. In other words, you're all Polaricus. This is an heirloom that's been handed down for a hundred generations. And if you inherited the question, what is justice? What's the right way to live? So you can laugh at Polemicus, but realize we're talking about you. Okay. Thrasymachus, the beast of discourse, jumps in. He says, ah, Socrates, that inimitable irony of Socrates. You won't tell us what justice is. That's because you're uh, lacking in knowledge. You're lacking in verbal skill. And all you want to do is ask questions but never answer them. You never make great speeches like rhetoricians and sophists do. And he says, well, that's because you are wise, Thrasymachus. Right, I'm not. I don't know Jack. So, of course, naturally, you're going to have lots to contribute, whereas I can't contribute anything. And Thrasymachus says, no, no, no. I, uh, I want to hear from you, Socrates. You're not going to get me to talk. Um, in fact, um, we want to hear from you, and we're not going to let that slide. And the narration here, remember that there's both imitation in the sense of direct discourse, but there's also narration in between, where a narrator says what he did, rather than giving us the exact terms that he used and words that he deployed. Okay. What that means is, this is a kind of drama that can't be put on stage. This is a drama of ideas. The stage that this is performed on is your mind. What this is or Plato's Republic, or the Platonic Dialogue, are to tragedy and comedy what mind is to body, or what understanding is to sensation. In other words, we're moving up a notch towards ideas, get it? Okay. Now they say, now the narration says, he made lots of arguments, but eventually he was willing to to speak because he really wanted to talk and wanted to get a reputation for being a good speaker. What he's trying to do is engage in verbal combat with Socrates, defeat Socrates. This is a Homeric outlook brought to, to words rather than swords. And in doing that, he wants to get the young men to flock to him, to pay him his fee so he can be their instructor. So what this is, this first part of the book, book one, is a fight between Socrates and Thrasymachus over the souls of the young men in the, in the discussion. Who is going to be the educator? Who are they going to follow? They're going to follow the one 
that does better in this verbal duel. Now Socrates knows that what Thrasymachus thinks because he hasn't made a secret of it. And what Thrasymachus claims is that justice is the advantage of the strong. What that means is might makes right. Whoever it is that's the stronger, whatever they tell everybody else to do, that's always justice, because justice is whatever they say it is. We're going to hear more about this idea when we get to Hobbes' idea of the sovereign, but we're a year from that or more. Okay? But the point is, justice is the advantage of the stronger. And this, by the way, is the idea that the Athenians deployed in the Melian dialogue. There's a reason why I have you read that. Because this is one of the current ideas that's floating around. That might makes right. And because we, are, we Athenians have a big army and a big navy, whatever we say is just. We are perfectly just people. Okay. So, he argues with Thrasymachus, and he doesn't even deploy good arguments against Thrasymachus. In other words, the arguments that Socrates uses in book one are actually weak, and he knows it. He's, it's, it's in a way like fencing with Thrasymachus, but he gives Thrasymachus a sword, and uh, Socrates picks up, I don't know, um, what's not a sword, uh, a foam swimming noodle, <laughs> right, and then beats him with that. Now, Thrasymachus knows that he's being beaten, and beaten like a dog, um, with a guy that wouldn't even pick up a sword against him, because he doesn't think he's worth it. All right? So he's going to deploy bad arguments, and arguments that can be extended. But, there, but Thrasymachus doesn't know enough to be able to handle these arguments. And there's a great line in the middle of it where he says, now they were going back and forth and they were in the middle of a hot day, a hot evening. So Thrasymachus began to sweat profusely. All right. Thrasymachus is sweating because he's working so hard and also he realizes he's losing this argument. So then he goes back and tries it again. He says, Socrates, do you need your nose uh, kept by a nurse. He says, don't be stupid. He says, let me try again. Socrates says, try as many times as you want. Knock yourself out. Well, he does. He tries again. And Socrates, again, easily and elegantly all right, um, fights a, a sword duel. But this time he's using, say, a rope, wailing on him with that. And he dodges everything through him because he can move towards him. And Socrates says, look, um, there's really no comparison I can't have a, a fair fight with a guy like this. By the end of book one, Thrasymachus has been silenced but not convinced. And neither have Glaucon and Adamantus. Now, it's very important that we understand that that first book is a kind of vestibule that gets you into the Republic. It's it leads to an aporia, which is an impasse. All right? Many of the standalone early dialogues, or short ones, lead to impasses. And then you have to work it out. But here we have an impasse. And then Glaucon and Adamantus step up and say, Socrates, do you want to really persuade us or seem to persuade us? And Socrates says, I don't want to seem anything. I want to, I want to be. So I really want to convince you. He says, okay. Glaucon says, then I want you to do a more thorough job in explaining why justice is advantageous and the only good thing. Now, as Glaucon says, 
I don't believe this, but you know what I've heard a lot of sophists and a lot of clever fellows say? That justice is good for what it gets you. In other words, it gets you reputation, it gets you trusted by other members of the community, stuff like that. But they also say that justice is not pleasant and that it would be nicer if you could, and you would be happier if you could engage in perfect injustice and didn't have to, have to pay any cost for it. So he says, Socrates, I want you to imagine a man who is perfectly unjust. Everything he does is unjust, but although he is unjust, he appears and he seems to be perfectly just. And not only does he, see, does he seem perfectly just, but we have another man compared to compare him with who's perfectly just, but he seems to be perfectly unjust. And everybody thinks he's an evildoer and the worst of men. Now, the guy who is unjust but appears just, he gets to be the king of kings. He gets to be like a, a Gyges. He ends up being a ruler and he can have sex with anybody he wants and take money from anyone he wants and kill anybody he wants. In other words, he can be complete libido. All right? And that's what would be, make me really great. On the other hand, our good man, who is good but appears to be bad, he's going to lose everything. His family will be killed. His house will be burned. He'll be tortured. He'll be set on fire and his eyes will be gouged out and all that stuff. And Glaucon says, now what I want you to do, Socrates, is show me that this unjust man who's perfectly unjust is not in a good condition. And that it would be much better to be the just man whose family is dead and who's been burned and has his eyes gouged out and all that gruesome stuff. And Socrates says... And again, you have to see the irony and you have to see how delicate this is. Socrates says, you know, you're doing a mighty good job of shining up this hypothetical individual. It'd almost be, it would almost sound like this is something you believe in. Now, remember, these are gentlemen. They're Plato's brothers. They have to be gentlemen. Who are not going to admit that, yeah, that does seem to make sense. Injustice may be stronger. They want the reputation for being just, but they're not convinced that being just is actually better. So he says, Socrates, show me that the guy with his eyes gouged out and who loses everything, it's burned and all, um, that he's better off than the unjust king of everything. Socrates says, tough thing to do. Then Adamantus piles on. He says, by the way, Socrates, I want you to make this even harder because I want you to remove all reputation, all the things that come along with justice. We take that away too. And he says, boys, you're doing a great job of polishing up this statue. You know, this would look, this would, it would be easy to make the mistake of thinking that you guys believe this. Now, of course, what we're all doing here is being extremely polite, but Socrates sees through what's going on here, and so do the boys. They know that Socrates is being arch. But what he's done by using bad arguments against Thrasymachus is seduce them. He sucked them into the argument. And if you read this book carefully, it will suck you into the argument, too. That's what it does to clever young people. Okay. He says, okay, let's, go, let's start. Book two. He's going, that's how we get it. We're going to get that 
image of Gyges. I don't have time to explain the myth of Gyges to you, but uh, look at Herodotus, and someday, if you're interested, we'll, we'll talk about it. But that myth, um, you could unpack that, and I could get three hours just out of that two paragraphs. Yes, it's, it matters that the, the hero is in a bronze horse. All right. Can you think of another poem that involves a hollow horse? <laughs> Notice he goes down. Then comes up, but he's worse because he's got a gold ring that he doesn't own. Turns it the wrong way, makes his body disappear. He's just a soul now. So you can just see what the soul is without the body. This is the ancestor of the current king of Lydia, Gyges. So that means that the king of Lydia and his ancestors are all usurping. We'll we'll come back to that. Um, We start with education. All right. We're going to create a minimal city, has all the stuff we need, but human nature drives us from the, the city of utmost necessity to the city of swine, where we have lots of other stuff. In other words, civilization. We get the division of labor, we get wealth, we get luxury, and that means we're going to get certain problems that will need doctors and judges and all kinds of other things that weren't needed in the city of utmost necessity. And then we're going to talk about an image that was used by Thrasymachus, the shepherd, the sheep, and the sheepdog. Thrasymachus says, look, the shepherd is completely self-interested, and all he wants is to eat sheep. He doesn't take care of them for the sheep's sake. He takes care of them so he can eat them. Socrates says, no. In fact, every art pursues what is good for the thing covered by that art, not for the artist. In other words, doctoring is concerned with sick people and making them better. That's why you have to pay a bill to the doctor, because he's practicing two arts the art of medicine and the art of making money. Okay, A shepherd gets a, a wage because he is actually concerned with what's good for the sheep. That's what a shepherd really is. And that's why you have to give him a wage for it. Okay. So we're breaking society into three groups. The shepherd, which is the government. The sheep, which is the population and the dogs, who are auxiliaries, helpers to the shepherd that protect the sheep. They don't feed on them. Oh man, we're an hour and a half into this, and I'm, in, I'm in almost through book two. Um, this is quite a complicated book. Um, let me jump. Uh, we're going to create a city and an educational regime. And in book three, we're going to talk about education. That's the big theme there. And what he does is attack Homer relentlessly. There's about a dozen quotes at the beginning of book three. He says, are we going to tell good men this and this and this and this? Are they going to be afraid of death? Are they going to be afraid of warfare? Are they going to be afraid of of wounds? Are they going to like virtue or going to like vice? And are they going to be taught that the gods are good or that the gods are evil? And... 
Glauk and Adamantus say, well, okay, you got a point there. We have to get rid of Homer. And he says, while I'm getting rid of Homer, what about tragedy and comedy? And he gives some quotes from that. He said, no, nah, well, tragedy and comedy have to go. There's no doubt about that. Okay. So we must supervise the tellers of tales. We must censor art because art is educative and art properly is subject to moral restrictions. In other words, art is not exclusively the domain of beauty and aesthetics. It's also the domain of morality and education. And that means that we will only allow, if we want a good city, we must have good art because that's what is the foundation of good education. And think about something like now, uh, something like Sesame Street, all right? Why do we want our four and five-year-olds to watch Sesame Street? Well, it has Big Bird and nice characters, and today's letter is M, and you know stuff like that. We'd rather have them watch that than As the World Turns, right? Some kind of soap opera on television. That's probably better for five-year-olds than you know. I can't stand if Brad knows, you know, or some kind of crazy stuff that you get in those things. All right. So here's the idea. Uh, something like Sesame Street is deeply Platonic. Because Plato is the first guy to understand that what you expose little children to influences the way their psyches develop. Imagine a six or seven-year-old hearing a, a good, solid retelling of the story of Medea. That's, a, that's not fun for the whole family. And Plato says, what do you expect people to be, if, to turn out as, at 21, if you tell them that at six? How about the, 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 the incest that runs all through the Oedipus stories? Killing your father? How about the Oresteia? Killing your mother and your father. We're going to kill everybody. All right. Um, the Bacchae. <laughs> let's, have, also, uh, let's have Dionysus kill everybody. All right? Um, it matters what sort of art you expose children to. And that's actually true. Okay. So he says... We're going to carefully educate the rulers, and we're going, to we're going to educate them in gymnastics and the muses. In other words, we're going to give them a set of studies that develop their bodies and a set of studies that develop their minds, which actually makes good sense. And he says, we're going to start early with easy stuff with kids to teach them. Right? Something like Aesop's fables, for example. It's not really about tortoises and hares. It's not a book about zoology. It's about a book about virtues and how you get them. And the fact that you should be like the tortoise if it continues to work. Okay, we start out, young people, being given wholesome poetry and wholesome art, and we withhold all the unwholesome influences. And actually, that makes a certain amount of sense to me. All right. Um, then what we're going to have to do is educate them in gymnastics. And if you've ever seen on the Olympics, you've ever seen the gymnasts, have you seen those particular events? Um, I'm always amazed at that, at that anybody can do that with their body. Both the males and the females, I mean, if you look at that, that's pretty amazing. At the highest level, the stuff they can do is just off the chart, right? And also, if you look um, particularly at the bodies of these gymnasts, they're all perfectly formed. In other words, every muscle, I don't know how many muscles there are in the body, but every one of those is the way it should be. Right? They've all been developed into a harmonious whole, and they look 
like Greek statues. In other words, they look like Kouros boys, right? They are these perfect human forms. And Plato says, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to do that with the body of those you're educating. In other words, you take them from where they start to approximate closer and closer some ideal of athleticism. But here's the kicker. Plato, because he's not a Christian, doesn't believe in original sin. And what that means is Plato thinks that there's nothing intrinsic to human nature that prevents it from being perfectible. All right? What that means is, is that what Plato wants to do in his educational policy is turn their bodies into those, the bodies of gymnasts. And then he wants to turn their minds into the mental analog of those bodies. Perfectly wholesome, completely developed minds. He said, once you have people who are physically and mentally perfect, well, that's the goal of human life. And if there's anyone that has the capacity to run a government properly, it's these perfect bodies and perfect minds. See, here's the, the hubris, the danger of the Greeks. Because they don't have an idea like original sin, that means that people aren't intrinsically flawed. And if there's no intrinsic flaw to people, then the big question becomes, how do we have to tweak society or law or education or institutions or what have you to make people go from being imperfect to being perfect. That's the big Greek problem. Now I think we have good reason to believe that actually this is a dead end, that it's impossible to perfect people. But Plato doesn't believe that. And lots of latter-day thinkers agree with Plato. Once you get rid of, of Yahweh, you're also going to get rid of original sin. And that means what intrinsic thing is going to prevent you from being perfect? If you can do it with bodies, why can't you do it with minds? If you can do it with bodies in some and minds in the other, why not do it in the same? Okay. So Plato wants to create <clears throat> perfect people. First, by education. Education is the guardian of the guardians. Okay. Now the main metaphor, the main simile, the idea that undergirds so much of this gigantic poem is that the city is like the man. The individual is like society. Now, he never argues for that. This is not an argument. It's an image. Okay? And he says, our process of education will be a process of creating order within their psyche, their soul in the same way the gymnastic created order within the parts of their body, create a harmonious whole. Okay. What we're going to do then is we're going to educate people insofar, or we're going to educate people to be as rational as they are capable naturally of being. Some people are more capable of rational thought than others. Well, some people are smarter than others. Yeah. What's saying? Does he mean like by saying music? Is this what he means? Yes. Okay. That's what music is. You know, it's, it's the muses. It's it's something like the humanities. All right. So all the arts and sciences. All right. 
they get this education and they're carefully examined. And this education is going to produce the best possible human beings because it's the best possible education. And once you have the best possible human beings, you have the right people to run the best possible society. Now, he says that we're going to have to create a system of castes, but which will be permeable. So some children born to a craftsman or farmer um, can move to the silver or the gold. Similarly, those among the silver or gold may turn out not to be good for much, so down they go to the farmers. But apart from that, what we're going to have is three castes, the gold, the silver, and the bronze. The gold are the philosophers. The bronze are the craftsmen and farmers, the people that work, they're the working class. And what they're going to get back is the maximum possible return on their work. In other words, every other constructible or conceivable elite is going to take less from these workers than the philosopher kings do. Why? Because there, instead of putting the workers on a subsistence diet and taking everything for the elite, he does the inverse of that. He gives the workers as much possible back from what they produce as possible and just gives a subsistence wage to the gold and the silver. So the idea then is that if, this pe if these people want to consume things, and that's what, what, what they enjoy, they like microwave ovens and uh, uh, cell phones and internet pornography. Well, the most that they're going to get of that is from the least rapacious elite, and that's what Plato's constructing here. They get the minimum, and workers get the maximum. What does that mean? It stabilizes society, because any other regime is going to have an elite that's going to take more from them. Yeah? You were saying that the Brahmins Yeah, and they like that. That makes them happy, right? That's the best they can do. So you give them 300 channels of cable TV. Yeah. So the only thing that separates the classes essentially is something that's innate in them and not economic. It's a capacity for reason. The ones with the least capacity of reason for reason are the ones who want the most pleasure. Right? They're the bronze. They're the appetites. The uh, gold are the philosophers. They're not interested in things of this world, mere objects. They want to think about the form of the good for itself. They want to reach a kind of conceptual perfection or spiritual perfection. And in between, we have the silver. The silver are heroic fighters that enforce the laws and obey the gold and defend the city against invaders, if there are any. The silver class is the spirited class. That's the class that loves honor and victory. Okay. Here's the deal. What the silver are, are Homeric heroes that have been demoted from top position. Instead, Plato's saying, look, you know what's wrong with those Homeric heroes? They're not reasonable. They're great fighters. But they're not all that quick. Particularly Achilles is really dumb. But Agamemnon is overwhelmed by his own uh, celebrity. And even Odysseus, who's the smartest of the bunch, um, he seems to have a very limited moral perspective, like when he kills Astanax, 
or when they raid that city, you know, the first one they come to when, when they're leaving Troy. Um, the problem with, with Odysseus is not that he isn't smart, it's that his intelligence is limited and his intelligence is the servant of his desires. He wants to get back home to Ithaca. He wants to bring his men with him, but he can't. He wants to help out his son, Telemachus. So all of his intellectual ability is used for unworthy purposes. It's not that getting back to Ithaca isn't proper within his sphere. Um, neither Homer nor Odysseus can imagine anything greater than Odysseus. What Plato has done is created the, the hero 3.0, and that's Socrates. Okay? So Socrates is a new kind of hero. He's a hero of mind. He's on a journey. It's the journey of dialectic, which gets named a number of times here. And he's also fighting a battle. All right. It's a Greek, there's a bunch of Greeks trying to take over a city, but ironically, the Greeks involved are Athenians, and the city they're trying to take over is Athens. And they do take it over and destroy it. And Socrates is the only guy trying to prevent that. So Socrates is both an Achilles and an Odysseus. Okay. Um, book four begins with, with uh, Adamantus saying, look, Socrates, you've told me about how you want to structure the society, but there's a problem with it. Um, the elite, they don't have any fun. In other words, they don't get villas and slaves and nice luxurious stuff. And he says, I'm an, well, implicitly, I'm an aristocrat. I'm Plato's brother, and I like all this luxurious stuff. I like being a man of wealth and influence. I like coming from a, a, an important family. And if the guardians don't get that, they're not going to be happy. Socrates says, no, you don't understand the wages of the best men. The best reason to run a government is because you're afraid of having the government run by people that are worse than you. And that actually is a terrible thing. So Socrates, or any thinker, any properly, properly ordered soul, is not going to want to run governments. In other words, what a thankless and irritating task it is to try and solve everybody else's problems. I mean, the philosopher would much say, why don't I go think about the form of the good and want you people solve your own problems? But he has a moral obligation to do so because he's seen the form of the good, knows that human beings are social animals, and that he has a moral obligation to take them out of the realm of darkness and into the realm of light. And that's what this book is about, yeah. How does this relate to something like a King Solomon in the city? Um, God asked King Solomon what he wants at the beginning of his, king, of his kingship. And King Solomon says, I'd like to be really wise. And Yahweh really goes for that. Now, the funny thing here is that um, nobody would ask Yahweh for wisdom if he wasn't already really wise. If he was stupid, he'd ask for it, you know, Christmas tree. Um, so the idea then is that Solomon is wise, but his wisdom is derived from the uh, contribution or the gift given him by Yahweh. All right. So um, Yahweh is the ultimate in wisdom. Uh, Solomon's wisdom somehow is connected to that. Um, on the other hand, the philosopher king, 
He's thinking about the form of the good. And the form of the good is like Yahweh, except that it doesn't have any anthropomorphic qualities. Remember in the uh, in the book of Exodus, the Lord thy God is a jealous God? Well, you can't imagine the form of the good being jealous. I mean, that's silly. That's anthropomorphic. It's a childish way of looking at omnipotence. I mean, what would perfection and absolute power and absolute knowledge be jealous about? Right? How about in the book of Isaiah, where God describes himself as being weary? He's really tired of these Israelites. Now, the idea that God gets tired is, again, um, it's a nice poetic image, but doesn't make all that much sense. Plato's God is like Yahweh, but it's a perfect crystal of goodness. And this good thing, outside of space and time, somehow generates intelligibility and reality for all the other things in the world. It doesn't change, and it's possible to reason your way to connection with it. Okay. So, Adamantus complains that the guardians are not having what he regards as fun. They don't, they don't get villas and you know, luxurious stuff. And Socrates says the guardians aren't interested in that because they're golden people who want knowledge, which is the same thing as virtue. They're not all that interested in a private jet or a mansion by the beach. All right. The men who undertake to rule for that reason are going to make a mess of things. Yeah. The guardians are like the main rulers? Yeah, right? okay. yeah they're, the, they're the philosophers. Right. So what Plato has done here by introducing the gold is introduced the idea that rationality is the ultimate good or it's the access to the ultimate good and the previous conception of human excellence, the Homeric hero has now been demoted a notch and we've tamed them because they're like wild animals, they're not rational and he said they serve a useful function because you're going to need warlike men to enforce the laws and to defend your city but you can't let these guys make decisions because what you get out of that is Agamemnon. Instead, in order to save these silver men from themselves and to save everybody else from these silver men, they have to take orders from the gold. And they'll be raised so that that's all they want to do. And they'll be given honor and everybody will clap for them and tell them how great they are. Okay. And... So there will be three classes, gold, silver, and bronze, the philosophers, the auxiliaries, and the common people, the workers. Now these correspond to the three parts of the soul. All right? The gold part of the soul, which everybody has, is the rational part. That's what allows you to do arithmetic and geometry. It also allows you all to get the same answers, providing you're doing it right. So it's universal. The silver part of the soul is, in Greek, the tumos. And what that means is the spirited part, this part that likes to win, the part that has team spirit. We like to come out on top. So these are competitors and champions, but their excellence is physical more than mental. And the silver, who take order from the gold, they keep the bronze 
workers in line. And in the soul, the bronze part is the part that has appetites, the desire for air, the desire for sex, the desire for food, the desire for whatever it is you want. The appetites and desires are the third part of the soul, and every soul has these parts. You can't be a human being without them. But these parts are differently arranged and differently distributed in different people. Some people have a very limited amount of the gold in their soul, and that means that ultimately they're not going to be able to understand the form of the good. So the problem is, how are you going to get people that don't understand the form of the good to behave well? And the answer is, number one, you're going to use the silver to coerce them. You're going to push them around with the warriors. Number two, you're going to give them as much as possible of what they want, which is pleasures. So we're going to kick back to you as much as, as you can produce. So you all get microwave ovens, so you all get you know, whatever it is you're going to get under the Christmas tree. And they really like that. All right? And uh, the gold, a properly arranged soul is gold, silver, bronze. A deranged soul is, some way, is having those mixed up in the wrong way. All right? And as we saw in the symposium, the thing that someone loves reveals to you the state of their psyche. If you love pleasure, you're bronze. And what that means is the characteristic virtue which you have to pursue is moderation. Two drinks, not the whole bottle of vodka. And if you are actually wise in your use of alcohol, you will sooner or later come to the conclusion, yeah, the whole bottle of vodka is a mistake. Moderation is the proper virtue for appetites. For silver, the proper virtue the spirited part, is going to be victory. They like honors. They want kudos. This is what drove Achilles. Yeah, I'm going to get killed, but I'm going to become really famous. Well, later on, when we get to the Odyssey, he says, being famous isn't anything. I'm not up for that anymore. So he learns. And what we're going to give the gold people is a chance to think. And they're going to think deep thoughts about the ultimate form of everything. And they're going to call the form of the good long distance. And they're going to find out about perfect goodness. Not the goodness of this thing or that thing, but what makes all good things good. And somehow this perfect good thing, completely removed from space and time and change, accessible only to the intellect, somehow generates reality and intelligibility throughout the entire world. It's like the sun. What do we have here? We have old River Valley civilization solar imagery being welded to Greek rationalism. Remember what solar imagery was in Egypt? That's right, it's Akhenaten's sun disk. He's the first monotheist. Socrates' sun is the form of the good. It's the ultimate good thing. It generates intelligibility and reality. And so that's his favorite thing. Once you've gotten access to the form of the good, you don't want anything. You, you don't want military medals, and you don't want microwaves. You just want to think about that some more. Okay. Oh, we're not quite halfway in. Okay, here's the deal. Um, the end of book four, Glaucon says, okay, Socrates, I've looked this over, 
and you've answered my question about whether you were better off being perfectly good and appearing bad, or perfectly bad and appearing good. In fact, the corrupted soul means that you can't have anything good in life, and you will be the most wretched and miserable of men to do that. So you convinced me that um, the question I asked at the beginning of book two, it's stupid and I apologize. He's got it. He understands that the silver life is not as good as the gold life. Okay. Then we get a very strange passage at the beginning of book five. And this is my weird reading. I don't know if anybody else reads it like this, but and I could be wrong, but it's still my best understanding of it. What happens at the beginning of book five? You read this carefully, didn't you? Well, you should know. Book five, towards the middle. So what's going on there? Uh, uh, well, come on, what goes on in the beginning of book five? Doesn't he talk about how philosophers must rule the city? Yeah, he does. What else? Who's doing the talking there? What are they talking about? Remember, books two, three, and four are just Socrates, Adamantus, and Glaucon, yeah? Yes, clever girl. That's exactly right. And even Thrasymachus has something to say. Now, this is the first thing Thrasymachus has said since book one. So it must mean something. Okay. Adamantus or, uh, is talking to Polemicus. Polemicus comes over to him, puts his cloak up, and speaks to him privately. Now, this is very unusual in Platonic dialogues. Platonic dialogues are about public speech. This private little tete-a-tete between Adamantus and uh, Polemicus is puzzling. Now, this is, I'm sure, is the point at which you started ripping through to get to the good stuff. This is the good stuff. Uh, this is the hinge on which the whole book swings. What's happening here is a reprise of the first page of the book. Socrates is being rearrested. Have a look at it. Socrates wants to start talking about the degenerate regimes, the, the four inferior regimes. But Adamantus and Polemicus are talking. Polemicus puts his cloak up, talks to Adamantus. And the last thing they said is, well, will we let him go or what will we do? Then Adamantus strides forward and says, Socrates, I arrest you in the name of the group. Have a look, it's in your book. When you think I'm making this up, I am not. You are just not reading carefully enough. Okay. I rearrest you. And he said, the reason I'm rearresting you is because you've stolen from us part of the argument. See, we want to hear about that real outrageous stuff you are telling us we need, because that struck us being crazy. But, you know, we just want to hear what you had to say, so we kept saying, yes, of course, Socrates. So he says, Socrates, what we really want is you'd explain three things that were very strange. Number one, these are the three waves of discourse. And he says, Socrates, first of all, I want you to explain about feminism. How is it possible for men and women to be given the same training? 
and to be raised for the same jobs. That strikes us as being not only different from Athenian customs, it's different from the custom everywhere. All right? I mean, all the societies they will have known of are all run by men, they're patriarchal. Okay, so you, Socrates, want men and women to give them the same education, and you want them, the, the men and the women to strip and engage in gymnastic exercises the way the Spartans do? That's crazy. And the idea that philosophers should be kings. Look, I only know one philosopher, it's you, and you're far too weird to be a king. <laughs> Why should philosophers be kings? There's nobody who's gonna believe that. There's nobody who's gonna believe that men and women are equal. And by the way, if you could explain to us, um, why it is that we have to abolish money and property, um, that would be great too, since we don't know of any regime that has successfully abolished money and property, has made men and women equal, and has had professional smart guys run things. Says, look, Socrates, stand and deliver. You're under arrest. You now have to answer. And then, Glaucon says, I'm with you there. I'd like to hear the rest of that argument. And then, this is great, it's a great line, you'll find it there in 450a. In fact, said Thrasymachus, you can take this as a resolution approved by all of us, Socrates. So, they're a little democracy, and they've all voted to arrest Socrates, which again shows you the conflict between knowledge and power, yep. Isn't this, wouldn't this be exactly what Socrates wants? Like, he wants them to to have all these questions so that he can answer them? That's like right. he's trapping them into it? Of course. Okay. Yeah, I mean, they all think they're in charge, but Socrates is looming over this thing. You know, it's, they're playing tic-tac-toe. Socrates is playing three-dimensional chess. He's you know, <laughs> got all this stuff going on here. They have no clue as to what's going on. So he, 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 Socrates is a great psychologist. He knows what motivates his interlocutors, and that's why he knows how to drive them in particular directions. That's why you want to suck Adamantus and Glaucon into this discussion. They're the two citizens and Socrates is a citizen, and this is properly a discussion among people who have, a, who have some skin in the political game. Okay, so Thrasymachus says, I'll vote with the group, we all have decided we all voted Socrates, we want you to explain the three uh, waves of discourse. And then Socrates explains the three waves of discourse, and that's what book five is. Bloom claims that book five is a kind of comedy and that Socrates can't be serious at having men and women strip and engage in uh, gymnastic exercises. But here's the problem. Bloom was a homosexual who was very, very interested in male things. I mean, he was a closeted gay man and, you know, a long time ago, and he was a nun. But um, he had very strange views of women. And the reason why he regards this as being a comedy, book five, is because he thinks that it's not possible to have either the equality of men and women, nor would it be possible among athletes to have men and women all get naked and all perform gymnastic exercises. He said that would be chaotic because of people's sexual impulses. Now the problem is this. We already have naked male gymnastics, both in Sparta and in Athens and in most Greek cities. And given the high incidence of homosexuality among these guys, if they can do, if they can engage in naked exercise with males all falling in love with each other and having sexual desire for one another, intrinsically there's no necessary problem in doing that heterosexually with females. All right. So if it's possible to have um, 
silver males get this this austere uh, gymnastic treatment. It's possible for the for the women in uh, of the silver class to get that as well. Bloom thinks that's impossible. I don't think so. I think Plato is deadly serious about feminism. Why? Because he's not interested in bodies. He's interested primarily in souls. You will find in your tenth grade geometry class that the girls who understood the theorem of Pythagoras were in many respects more similar to the boys that understood the theorem of Pythagoras than to the boys and girls that had, weren't able to make any sense of this at all. In other words, the A students that can do math, they're golden. It doesn't matter what their bodies look like because it's not about bodies. As far as Plato's concerned, uh, the, the body is uh, mortal and changes, but the soul lives forever. So your soul, after you go to the realm of the dead and come back, um, changes bodies the way you change clothes. Yeah. But what about this? Doesn't Plato think that you would have to take bodies into account when, when looking at a society? Yep. He said, look, when you're going to engage in war, both men and women will be trained for war, both men and women will participate in it. But because women are, are not as strong as men, we're going to send men to do the heavier work, which actually makes sense. But the difference is one of degree, not of kind. Okay, now, this rearrest. what's everybody doing there? Well, this is the justification for Socratic dialectic. If you allow Socrates to talk to you and ask you questions and show you that you don't know what you're talking about, it is possible to rearrange your soul like a Rubik's Cube. In fact, moving from the worst kind of soul to the best kind of soul follows a definite progression of the three parts of the soul. Let's take a look at this. How many, in a, a three-part matrix, or three variables, how many different uh, uh, combinations are there? Some of you must know math. <laughs> how many different ways are there to arrange A, B, and C? No, no Okay. I'm, I'm like, I'm like showing you to the power. Six. Six. Oh, okay. <laughs> you put one of them on top, and then you change the two bottoms. And you put a, another one on top, and you change the two bottoms. And you put the other third on top, and then you change the two bottoms. There are six possibilities. All right? So that means that we can structure the soul in six and only six ways. All right? Gold, silver, and bronze, you with me here? All right, good. Here's the problem. All right. Um, you can have gold, silver, bronze. That's the orderly soul. That's the philosopher. But it's not possible to have gold, bronze, silver. Why? Because the gold is rational and it's perfect. So it never mistakes bronze for being superior to silver. So once you have gold in charge, it can only be this. Now, that's two of the possible permutations there are four more. There's SGB, that's a silver man who has gold as the second part of his psyche, and the bottom is bronze. There's also another kind of silver man who has bronze, he, he likes the appetites a little more, and reason a little less. Another permutation 
is having the bronze soul at the top and then having gold and silver below that. And the furthest you can get from the philosopher king is the tyrant, and that's brown, silver, gold. We okay with that? Okay. This is the philosopher king, the orderly soul. He also has virtue, his virtue is knowledge, and this doesn't change, which means that he has true being as well. All the rest of these have, are becoming, they're not being, they're not perfect. So they're changeable. The Timocrat, the guy who likes honors, puts silver up there, gold and then bronze. He likes honor and victory, but he, he can be allowed to change. And what he chooses is courage over wisdom, which turns out to be a mistake. Check those citations to make life a little easier. That's 445B and 548B. The oligarch, he's also a silver man. He's an elite. But he likes the good life. And gold is at the bottom. He likes wealth and status. Here, he has courage over desire, but he still leaves much to be wished for with regard to his rational capacities. The Democrat, he likes his bronze stuff. And gold and silver, but no, believe any that. What he wants is freedom and equality. That's the definition of the democratic man. This is going to change, and here we're going to have appetite over reason. And here we're going to have appetite over honor, which is the most depraved kind of soul. Okay? Does that make sense? And appetite over honor, have a look at that. We'll find out that um, this makes you not even human. It makes you bestial, like a carnivorous animal. Okay. You got this down? You will need to have this if you don't. You got this down. Okay. Now, this is Socrates. A Timocrat would be most brave in all things. Glaucon? Yeah. In fact, when they describe Glaucon at a mount, it says the soul of the Timocrat would be most like Glaucon here. That's right. I know. Um, this is Glaucon. That's what Socrates likes him. The oligarch, remember what Adamantus does at the beginning of book four? Says, Socrates, your rulers aren't having much fun because they don't have all this really great wealth and luxurious excess and everything. The Democrat is the young kid who thinks that he's the equal of the aged man, and he's the medic who thinks that he's the equal of the citizen because he really likes that freedom and equality, which is what democratic men like. And his name is Polemarchus. And our tyrant is you-know-who, Thrasymachus. Now, I want to take you back to that beginning of book five. And of course, this should completely change your view of the book. If it doesn't, then there's something wrong. All right. Now, you will find every gesture, every oath, every verbal movement is that. In other words, for the whole book, Every time Socrates is talking, that's talking. Glaucon, Adamantus, Polemarchus, and Thrasymachus. Now, Polemarchus and Thrasymachus only talk because they're not citizens. They only talk in the first book and in this one small section of the beginning of book five. And what do they do? Well, at the end of book four, 
to recap the score. Glaucon has said, Socrates, I'm really sorry for asking this question. It was stupid. Uh, somebody with a corrupted soul can't possibly have anything good in life. And I really apologize for liking honor and stuff so much. And Socrates says, don't worry about it, you fortunate man. The reason why he's fortunate is that at this point, Glaucon has moved up a notch from Timocrat to philosopher. That's why he realizes that the argument was stupid. Then we have a little discussion behind the scenes between Polemarchus and Adamantus. Is that what happens in the beginning of Book 5? Right? Puts up his cloak. The reason why he's putting up his cloak is because Polemarchus, who started out as the democratic man, is now an oligarch, so he's doing things behind the scenes. That's how oligarchs work. On the other hand, our oligarch, Adamantus, he then decides to step forward and arrest Socrates in the name of the group because he's interested in honor, because he's now a Timocrat. And at the end of it, with, it's the only thing the guy says outside of book one. Thrasymachus says, I'll vote that way too. Why? Because he's a democratic man. <laughs> now do you see what's going on there? First of all, everything that everybody says, every gesture, every word, every oath, every reference, every connection is connected to that. And what we're actually seeing is the transformation of the tyrant into the democrat, the democrat into the oligarch, oligarch into the timocrat, and the timocrat being made, made philosophical. What that means is exposure to Socratic dialectic improves the soul. Not only does it improve the soul, it improves the soul in a particular specific way. In other words, it's like doing a Rubik's Cube. You can't just be, go from tyrant to philosopher. You have to go through all these stages. So the tyrant has to be persuaded that the heroic pursuit of pleasure is only going to get you killed. That's not an effective way of doing it. That's not food. The smart thing to do is to go for private life in a democracy. You can pursue lots of pleasures there and nobody's going to bother you. Tyrants get killed a lot. Democrat has to be, has to be persuaded that honor is more important and, and, uh, and uh, elite and being a member of elite is more important than freedom and equality. And since uh, since Polemarchus has just become an heir. He's inherited the argument. He now has property. So he's interested in preserving that property. So he does things behind the scenes. He's a blasted oligarch. <laughs> you following this now? The oligarch, Adamantus, says, I'll take care of things here. My brother's thinking about the form of the good. I'm going to straighten this out. You're arrested, Socrates. Why? Because he's now a Timocrat. And the reason why his brother apologized just before this happens is because he's actually moved from wanting honor to wanting wisdom. Okay. Uh, I don't know if this is in any book. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure this is the way it works. No, this is what I figured out when I was 20 or so, when I was taking it and I finally saw what was going on. I was in a, a dormitory, which actually a converted hotel, which was really great. So we had these awesome suites. And I was on the 12th floor, and look, it opened out to Lake Michigan, and uh, we got the sunrise. So I hit this about 4 a.m. and I actually watched the sunrise. It was grooving on it in a big way because everything was now revealed to me and I now understood how the Republic worked. And I've been working on this a week after week after week. But no, um, I figured this out all at once. And I think it's right, although I could be wrong. All right, uh, 
reading Platonic dialogues makes me very wary of saying, oh, this is no, no, no. Um, it looks like that's how this works. Yeah. Is there other similar theories that like people no. have on this? No. no. Or I haven't seen them. I've read a lot of commentary. I've never seen it. It doesn't mean somebody hasn't thought it up. Probably some 19th century German. They've thought almost everything. <laughs> right. But uh, apart from that, um, that is what you're watching. So every time somebody makes an objection, somebody or somebody makes an observation, or somebody takes the argument in a new direction, it's always a response to that. And that's what the Republic is. Now, after we finish the waves of discourse, the next thing in book six, we're going to solve all the outstanding problems in intellectual life. Here they are. This whole thing arrives from me to notice. It comes before the, uh, uh, the myth of the cave. The myth of the cave is like diet ontology. You know, it's, it's meant to be an image rather than an argument. It's going to divide reality, being, into four kinds of things. Right, there are forms, like the form of the good, the form of the beautiful. It's a big good and beautiful things, good and beautiful. There's also mathematical objects, triangles, seven, uh, the theorem of Pythagoras. Then this is the line between knowledge, which is the stuff up here, and opinion, which is the stuff down here. You can have opinions about objects of sense perception, like tables and chairs. You can't get absolute knowledge of them because they're in their own becoming. If they keep changing, how can you know them? And then below that, you get imitations. Imitations are things like reflections in a mirror, or paintings, or photographs. All right. In other words, uh, a photograph of a table is not a table. And a table, as an object of sense perception, um, relates back to the form of tableness, which is why we call all these things tables. This is the realm of knowledge. This is the realm of opinion. Hold on. This is Parmenides. This stuff here is Heraclitus. This is being, and this is becoming. So far, so good. Remember when we were driving ourselves crazy trying to figure out how being is, or how everything, is, how everything becomes, or whatever the hell is going on there? Well, Plato solved the problem. He says, look, there are things that, that change and things that don't. And you can know the things that don't, you can't know the things that do. Uh, he really likes math, that's his favorite thing, and that's Pythagoras. And his, his religion of mathematics. Um, objects of sensation would be Ionian physics. And then below that, the imitators, poets, and sophists. So they're the least real, the most illusory. This is the bottom of the cave, and these are the guys that bring those things that, pe that cast the shadows. And Socrates wants to lead us up and out. <coughs> so the cave, even though it comes later in book seven, is informed by the divided line. If you want to know what's going on in Plato, it's the divide in the Republic, it's the divided line. That's the big news. So what Plato has done is saying, look, I've, I know about pre-Socratic physics. I know about the sophists. I know about the poets. Uh, I know about Pythagoreans and mathematical craziness. 
I also know about the ultimate nature of the good. And it's not found here on Earth in space and time. It's something that you only can think about. So up at the top of the forms, we have the form of the good. That's the big daddy. Right. And the good is going to allow all the other forms to exist, and it's going to allow you to understand them. And then below that are mathematical objects. And that's where knowledge ends. This is real knowledge. This is only your opinion. Now get ready for this, right? Uh, 15 months from now, I'm going to get you to the Enlightenment, and we're going to study the rise of modern natural science. That means like Copernicus and Galileo and Newton. What that amounts to, what the rise of modern natural science 3.0 amounts to, is dropping the dividing line one space. That's all they do. Now, remember when Descartes mathematizes the space? Well, God won't tell lies, so mathematics must be coherent and true. And if you apply mathematics to objects of sense perception, you get the same advantage. This is what the history of Western philosophy is. The rise of modern natural science is pushing Plato's ontology one degree. What you get is very powerful knowledge of the world of space and time and matter and change. What you lose is the idea of knowledge as absolute truth. What you're going to get from natural science is not absolute truth. If you want absolute truth, you need math. For absolute truth, uh, for natural science, you don't get absolute certainty. You get what's called warranted assertability. So in other words, you have some grounds for claiming that water runs downhill. How, what, what grounds would that be? I poured water down an inclined pane a hundred times and it all rolled downhill. That doesn't mean that the next time I do it, it won't roll uphill or do whatever it does. No way to know. So you don't get certainty, but you get warranted assertability. And this warranted assertability is practically very, very We're going to then, uh, from the divided line to the cave, after the cave, we're going to do the degenerate regimes. Now remember that Plato does not expect his ideal regime to exist in space and time. It's a pure idea. And the spatio-temporal world doesn't have that. It's also Plato's idea of justice and Plato's uh, idea of a perfect society is also contradictory. Here's the sense in which it's contradictory. This is what shows that you can't expect it in this world. Plato says justice is two things. One, it's everyone doing their job and not meddling in anybody else's job. One man, one job. Remember that? Okay. He also says that we will not have a just and orderly society until philosophers are kings. Now here's the problem. Philosopher and king are different jobs. So what it means is you can't have this ideal society here in the world. It can't be realized. So the people who criticize this saying this is a project for totalitarianism are completely missing the point. Plato doesn't intend to actually realize this in the world. What he's doing is using it as a standard by which to judge the imperfections in all the regimes that exist here in this world of space and time. Remember that for Plato, the idea of a circle 
is never actually found in the world of space and time. We can get roughly circular things, and some people draw better circles than others, but nobody can draw a perfect circle because a perfect circle is a pure idea. All right? It can't be made of matter. Remember that matter is made of all these atom atoms and the subatomic particles are whizzing about. So it doesn't have a direct straight line, for example. All right? And the line is always fuzzy in the physical world, but not in the ideal world, and that's the one Plato likes. So, we're now going to go down from the philosopher king, we're going to go to the Timocrat. All right? And this breakdown comes from bad reproduction and from valuing the wrong things. So, from philosopher king to Timocrat. And then the Timocrat turns into the oligarch, or his son does. All right? Why? Because he goes to move it from liking honor to liking wealth. And then he goes from liking wealth to liking freedom. And then from liking freedom, he likes power. And that's the final destruction of both the city and the soul. Now, when I was your age, I didn't, I didn't know that books could do this. I had no idea that books could do this. When I found it out, I was completely shocked. I mean, because this messes with your brain. Because you realize that this is a that this is a something like a, a game of shoots and ladders. You you step in one side and you slide out and you find you're in another book, but yeah, it's connected there in these subterranean, very strange and unpredictable ways. Right? And so we're gonna go down the line, things are gonna get worse. Plato's Republic is an attempt to abolish history. Why? Because once you have perfection, you can't change it, because then that would be less than perfect. So it become worse. So the idea then is to get society right and then freeze it and then not let any history happen to it because then it will decline. Now, of course, this is a pipe dream too, but remember that Plato is not trying to actually realize this in the world. What he's doing is creating for you something like a, I, th I believe in Paris they have the, uh, the uh, the kilogram, and it weighs exactly a kilogram, and that's how the they judge all the other kilograms in the world. Same sort of thing with the standard meter. They have that in France, too. Um, this is the standard society, or this is the standard government, or this is the standard arrangement of the soul, all of which can be used to judge the uh, qualities of things in this world that claim to be soul and society. All right. And then, we come down to the end, and this is actually, I mean, what I like. Book, book 10 is actually quite good. Um, it's a bit of a rag bag of different stuff, but the key point, after he flogs Homer a bit more, is uh, that he says, now I have a myth for you. And we're going to get all poetic here. And he says, look, once upon a time, there was a man named Ur. Ur died, but he was still alive. So his family was going to hold a funeral for him, but Ur jumped off the pyre and said, I'm alive. His family asked, well, that's unusual. What's going on, Ur? And Ur tells him, look, here's the deal. I went to the place where dead people go. And it turns out that all the Homeric stories about that are wrong. Instead, you get led in a path to perfect, righteous judges that never make mistakes, and they can't be bribed. And if you lived a good life, you get a thousand years of really great stuff. And if you lived a bad life, you get a thousand years of torment and punishment. And then, your soul gets dipped in the water of forgetfulness, 
and then you get born again, stuck into a new body. But before you get born, you are allowed, your soul is allowed to choose what future you're going to choose. So you can decide to be a king, or you can decide to be a businessman, or you can decide to be a farmer, or you can decide to be a snake or a moose. All right? You've got to turn into some living thing. And your, the state of your psyche is going to determine what life you're going to choose in the future. You can't blame it on the gods. So it turns out that the Homeric heroes, like Agamemnon, wants to be, decides to become an eagle. And Ajax decides to become a lion. Why? Because they're not really human. These are bestial souls who have now found their proper body. The only one of the Homeric heroes that changes is, or that decides differently, is Odysseus. He says, look, I've thought about it, and this, uh, this Homeric hero stuff is a mistake. I'm going to be a quiet, private farmer, and I don't want to get involved in heroism at all. And that's the sign that he's the smartest of the bunch. Okay? And what that means is this. The myth of Ur is for the overwhelming majority, 99% of the people who read the Republic, who cannot make a heads or tails of what's going on here, have no idea what's going on. If you're not capable of following the reasoning behind Plato's arguments, he says the next best thing for guys like you is myths. Now, any myth is going to lie to you, but my lies are going to get you to behave as if you understood what was going on. So a good myth, a good poet, is one who tells lies but these lies tell the truth. A bad poet is like Homer. He tells you lies, and his lies are really lies, and he makes a mess of your life and your society. All right? So, for all you people who read the Republic and had no idea what was going on, and are roughly in the condition of Cephalus, who is not all that quick and probably not educable at all, I have something special for you. It's a story. It's the story of Ur. And it turns out... You can't bribe the gods, and in the future, you're going to be judged, and there's a future state of rewards and punishments, and it's perfectly just. Yeah? Yeah, so that's one thing I don't understand about his argument for imitation is that he says imitation in and of itself is a bad thing, right? Because when you're imitating something, it's not the real thing. Mm -hmm. It's less good. It has less reality. Okay, so but... In the story, in the myth, not, every, not every myth is bad. In other words, myth is never as good as the logos, as rational argument. He always prefers logos to mythos. But there are some people that just can't follow rational arguments. These are the ones that in your geometry class that couldn't understand the theorem of Pythagoras. Okay. Um, there are some people that have, everybody in fact, all of us, have limitations on our reason. Okay. Um, the people that have the greatest limitations on their reason, we still have to organize their behavior and have them move in a wholesome and desirable way. And the best way to do that is to give them good rather than bad poetry. And good poetry is poetry that supports moral conduct. Bad poetry is poetry that prompts bad conduct. And he says, for those of you who are like Kefis, who had no idea what my book was about, I have a scary story for you. All right? When you die, you get judged. You can't get over it, so you better be good. It's a little bit like a Christmas song. Uh, he knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. Well, um, the form of the good knows that. And if you're not capable of understanding 
how to engage in good behavior. He can give you opinion, which is what you get from these myths. And this true opinion works about as well as we could possibly hope for a person like you who doesn't understand reason. And that makes you as good as you can possibly be. And so everybody is going to be given as much reason as, they, as their soul can possibly tolerate. But inevitably, you're going to run up against the limits of reason and of the differential limits of various souls. What do you do, in other words, with dumb people? You give them a story that gets them to behave as if they were smart people. And that's the next best thing. That's how the myth of the metals works. That's the noble lie. Yeah. Um, is Plato connecting like freedom and nationality when he's talking about the psyches of the souls to choose? Yeah. Um, it's very funny how we take freedom here. I think that Kant would like the conception of freedom that's operative here. Um, early on, I, I just reread this over the weekend and I had a very good time with it. Um, there's some place where he says early on that the guardians are the craftsmen of the city's freedom. Okay? But this is not freedom in the sense of liberty, doing whatever you want. This is freedom in the sense of autonomy, accepting proper moral rules and then conscientiously obeying them. Right. Let me explain it differently. Imagine someone gets married and uh, this man decides to cheat, he wants to cheat on his wife. Okay. Um, he says, well, I mean, I feel so constrained and so constricted. I'd like to have the liberty to go out with this other woman. Okay. On the other hand, that's a limited conception of freedom. Another conception of freedom is that you are free, not when you're at liberty, but whether you're autonomous, when you create autonomous, when you create laws for yourself, and then obey those moral laws that you've freely chosen conscientiously. So the question is, who's the, who's the most free? The man who keeps his vows to his wife or the man who cheats? Well, it depends on what you mean by freedom. If you mean freedom as liberty, then it's the guy who cheats. If you mean freedom as autonomy, setting rational rules for yourself and obeying them conscientiously because you chose them, that's autonomy. That's a different conception of freedom. Plato's conception of freedom is freedom as autonomy. And the only people who are actually capable of autonomy are those rational gold souls. Everybody else is in Kantian lingo heteronymous. You don't know what that means, but you will in a year or so. Okay? But the point is, everyone is going to be given as much truth as they can handle. But like, the, like uh, Jack Nicholson says, or is it Jack Nicholson? Says in that movie, you can't handle the truth. Well, there's a large chunk of society that can't handle the truth. So you tell them useful stories. And they're good stories as opposed to evil, evil stories because they get you to behave in a morally proper way. That's what we have for Kephalus at the end. See, come on back in, Kephalus. You killed a lot of oxen. Great. I have a story for you. All right. Now, granted, it's a little late for you, so you're going to get punishment and all. But for your son, Polemarchus, I have a story that will help him at least to begin with. Okay. So, um, there's a lot going on in the Republic. And actually, you could teach a course just on this book. I am not making that up. 
it would be perfectly possible to do 15 weeks where we read it and read it and read it and read it and read it. And eventually it would make, it would become much more coherent to you than it is now. All right. Like I said, the first time you read this, you're actually not reading it. The only time that you can read The Republic is after you've read it once. Strangely, it's true. Um, I was hoping that in your close reading you would be able to figure that out, but it, it hasn't worked out so far because it's been 35 years. All right. But uh, that, I believe, is what's going on there. That's, I mean, look, I could be wrong. Um, I haven't seen it in any book, um, but I think it's true. And it's my best understanding of it, although, look, there are lots of questions still to be asked. But this is why I had you read all that other stuff, so you could make sense out of Plato, particularly out of the Republic. This is the high point of the first term. This should have, left, should have led you towards a clearer understanding, towards a clearer idea of the Republic. Um, one of the, I'll get you in a second. One of the funny things that happened to me when I was at Columbia, this is when I was still a graduate student, I was teaching there a great books course, and I did the Republic, and I did it every year, and that was my favorite thing to do. But one year I broke my right leg, and I was in a cast all the way up to my hip, to my foot, which is in bad shape. So I was getting around on crutches and getting in and out of cabs in Manhattan, because I lived in Manhattan, and you know, I took the cab up to the university. One time, and this was, oh, crap, this would be the late, seven, late 80s, before you were born, but um, I had my copy of Plato, and my, I had the big green Bollinger edition of Plato, like, that, that massive thing, okay. Well, um, I had marked that up, and marked that up, and marked that up, and this was my second of those, because I already gone through my first and wrecked it. But I got out of the cab, gave the guy the money, and as the cab went down Amsterdam Avenue, up towards Harlem, um, I realized that I left my book in the cab. And so I watched the cab go out towards the vanishing point. And actually, it turned out that that was the best thing that ever happened to me because the Platonic Dialogues went from being a thing to being an idea. In other words, it moved up the divided line. I still lecture on it just on the basis of the idea that I have in my head. Um, when I went for my first job interview at Princeton, um, that's, of course, like a real lucky thing to get. It's real hard to do. And I wasn't listening to the nice lady on the phone tell me what I needed to prepare. So I just showed up like an idiot. And they said, well, we'd like to give you, you to give a lecture on one of the great books. And I said, well, I hadn't actually prepared anything. And they said, well, what, you dropped as an infant? You got to be stupid. I mean, here you are. You, you want, I mean, look, they had 600 applications. They had three people interview. And now here I'm going to blow it here by not having a lecture. So let me see the list. On the list is Plato's Republic. So I went up to the blackboards, and I just went all around, and I just outlined the entire Republic from memory. And they, they looked at me, like, that's strange. <laughs> and then I just laid down the hard line. I laid down this on And they said, well, that's even stranger. And I got the job. But later on, after they gave me the job, they said, you were just kidding. Which, well, no, I wasn't just kidding. I, 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 I'm deep formatted for the Republic. <laughs> I mean, everything in the intellectual world revolves around this idea, or this book, and this set of ideas. I'm just, what can I say? Um, I've read it enough times so that it's not an object anymore. It's an idea. And all I have to do is call upon the idea and generate all this stuff. So um, I leave this to you. This is actually um, a legacy from 100 generations ago. You are the heirs of the argument. All 
You don't know what to do with it. That's what you're supposed to do at this point in your life. Right? But um, this book has much more to tell you and much more to teach you than you have gotten from it from your first or your second reading. All right? You need reading after reading after reading before it all starts to pull together. It's like the very complex score for a Beethoven symphony. I mean, that's just immensely complex. But if you are musical and you look at that and deal with that again and again and again, you'll begin to see how the parts form an integral whole. And that's, that works for the Republic as well. This is Plato's greatest achievement, I think. I think this is also the greatest achievement of, of well, early of the Greeks, that Plato is in and this is the best of Plato, right? He's starting a new philosophy. He's giving us a new kind of literature. And by the way, he wants to create uh, a kind of religion around the form of the good. It's the perfect crystal, the essence of goodness. It's a monotheism without revelation. In other words, you think your way into this. Right? But what he wants is one thing, because the good is unified and changeless, and it generates reality and intelligibility to everything around us. So what he's doing here is trying to create not just a new poetic alternative to Homer. He's also creating a new religion to the Homeric theology. Instead of all these gods and goddesses doing bad stuff, he's got this one thing. That's the ultimate nature, the ultimate reality and the ultimate good. And he shows you how to get to it. So, in my view, Platonism is one of the great world religions. I know that sounds strange, but... um, if you only bring rationality to this, you're not likely to get nearly as much as you should out of Plato. All right? There's a lot. In other words, it's not less than rational, but it's a lot more than rational. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask: Is argument the form of prayer in this religion? Um, well, well, see, that's the problem. Glaucon says after he, you know, after he makes his apology, he says, now Socrates, I'd like you to get me right to the form of the good. What's it like? And he said, Socrates says, you got to go there on your own. I, I can't explain that to you. All right? It's like the sun, if that helps, but no, it doesn't help. All right? um, the point is that um, language breaks down as we move towards the absolute. That's the problem we had with Parmenides. If there's one absolute, the one, well, then it's literally one. It's not articulated, and it's also not articulable. So you can't talk about it. Well, that's what the form of the good is. You know it when you see it, but of course you don't see it with your eyes. You see it with your intellect. But no one can get you there, and it's not communicable. There's a mysticism hidden in the center of this. And that's why I wanted you to read that this summer, because this is the kind of book you have to live with and think about. And this will, this will be relevant to all of our next three terms, those of you who are going to be around. But this, you have to get the Greeks in order to be able to get the West, and you have to get this in order to be able to get the Greeks. Does this make sense? You're all looking stunned. Okay, uh, there's nothing I can do about that. Um, Here's the deal. Uh, We only have one more week left because of Thanksgiving, so I was thinking maybe we could come a little bit early. Could we do it at 5 o'clock on next Tuesday? 5 o'clock, and we'll we'll, we'll do both Aristotle's Politics and Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Now, um, who's presenting that? 
None of you are presenting either of those things? Okay. None of you seem to be interested in volunteering. I don't see anyone jumping on that. Um, Paul, uh, the Nicomachean Ethics. One of you ladies back there? No? One of you ladies on the left? You get the same education as the males. <laughs> so you're supposed to do Aristotle too. Back there, Aristotle's politics. All right? See you all next week. All right? You can go ice your brain down now. All right? Because no, this pushes your brain really hard. All right? But once you do that, you realize, wow. Um, the world of the mind and the world of thought is so marvelously extensive and stunningly beautiful too. I will see you all in a week. Good question. Yes. Is there a good time Thursday that I could come by your office? Yeah. Uh, come by just before my six o'clock class. Sounds good. Come by say five. Or five thirty. Wait. So there's no next Saturday class. No. We're having a class early at five.